Well, I incorrectly numbered this as uh, number 12. It's actually supposed to be number 13. I forgot to. Uh, we did 13 or did 12 on Sunday for this one. So it was the whatever number in succession it was for the Sunday series, and it was also number 12 for this one. So I'll change that in the ones to come. But uh, that if you notice when we put it up on the podcast, it's on the Wednesday side and on the Sunday side. So that way you can you can see it um, progress right on right on through. But tonight we are in First Kings chapter fourteen. First Kings the fourteenth chapter we just uh, finished on Sunday. The prophecy that was given to Jeroboam by the young prophet, and of course the things that had happened between him and the older prophet, and how unfair that sometimes seems. We're going to tackle another. Anybody got on on Facebook today and see the little teaser we put out there for you? Okay, only only Keith. Now that's a shock right there. That is a shock right there. Wow, of all the people. <laughs> it's a good thing Keith has a thick skin, I'll tell you. <laughs> he does start a lot, yes, but he didn't start that one at all. He just, he's just sitting there doing a good job back there. First Kings chapter 14. Here's the question we're going to take on here at the end. Why does God call one person and allow another person to take an office when both of them fail. Remember the verse of scripture that says that God would not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. All right. I think our understanding of that is messed up. I was doing some meditating on this um, a few weeks ago and I had something drop down in my spirit. I believe it was dropped down in my spirit anyway, that uh, may change how we look at that scripture. So we'll get, hit that towards the end here. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. Now, this one's going to throw you, especially at religious people. This will mess with you. At that time, it's probably the time when the, the, the other prophet had come up uh, in the previous chapter. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Please arise and disguise yourself that, you may, that they may not recognize you as the wife of Jeroboam. Now, look at this scripture here. Jeroboam said to who? his wife, and then look a little further down, that they may not recognize you as? How many wives does he have? Sounds like one, doesn't it? So Jeroboam does not follow after God, but he doesn't follow in the footsteps of the other kings who had multiple wives. He has one. Isn't that interesting? All the other stuff he let go so quick, this one he hangs on to. And go to Shiloh, indeed, Ahijah the prophet is there, who told me that I would be king over this people. Now, we just had the young prophet. He can't go to the young prophet because he's dead. I don't think he would anyway because he didn't have such a great good news. Let's go back to the one who had good news for me. And, uh, and go, but he's probably not going to have good news for me now, so you're going to have to go and disguise yourself so he doesn't know that you're my wife because he'll recognize you. Also take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him, and he will tell you what will become of the child. Now, as we said, he has one wife. Go to Egypt, go, to, go there disguised. Now, look at what he says to take with you. Also take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey. For most of us, we read on through that, and we're blind to what it says. It says a whole lot of stuff right in here. When you go to a prophet to get a word from God, generally you went with a gift. As with the sacrifices, there is a gift 
Remember when Jesus was, was, uh, was born and they had to sanctify him? And you remember what they brought for the, the gift? The turtle doves? Why did they bring the turtle doves? Because that is what a poor person brings. If you, couldn't, if you couldn't supply what the word called for, he says, all right, if you can't do this, if that's beyond your means, then the turtle doves will work. And so at that point, they were poor. Now, the, remember, the, the rich folks who came on by and blessed Jesus with all kinds of gifts didn't do that until after this. About two years, he was about two years old when the wise men came and gave him all the gifts. So at this point, all they have is what they had in the salary, which apparently wasn't a whole lot. And uh, they qualified to just do the, the turtle doves. What Jeroboam tells them to do here is to bring a poor man's gift to the prophet. Is Jeroboam poor? No, but if he brings a king's or a rich person's gift, then we mess up the disguise that she's trying to pass off that I'm just a poor old person from the village and just need uh, some, some help here. So we bring the poor person's gift, not the normal one. This is, so it doesn't, it doesn't jump out at you, but this is part of the deception that Jeroboam has. Now, here's, I put this in your outline for you. So may God or he just think you are somebody else so you can get a prophecy intended for someone else so that God has to come through with it for you on a technicality. All right, so this is the idea. And we're going to go to the skies, and either we deceive God or we deceive Ahijah, one or the other. Can you believe that people actually think they can deceive God? God is going to give us the word. Oh, was that you? But this is what they think. I mean, warp minds. It's amazing the places that we can go, isn't it? Ah, I'll tell you what. So the idea is to trick God or Ahijah into prophesying good things for your future so that he has to come through and make him come true. Uh, that's what we'll do. If we can get God, if we can get Ahijah to say good things about the son that he'll live, then he'll have to live. But we already had the word from the other prophet, that, well, your household is going to be destroyed. This is part of the destruction. So what does that say about Jeroboam's view of God? <laughs> it doesn't say a whole lot, does it? But it uh, isn't much different than people today who put more faith in the person praying for them than the God behind them. Because how many times do we try and, and put forth an effort to get to certain people when, it's, when no person on the face of the earth can heal anybody no person on the face of the earth can perform a miracle for anybody. Only God can. So it really doesn't matter the person. But anyway, we go on. Verse 4. And Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. But Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were glazed by reason of his age. So he was old. and they, you know, he, he was, uh, There are people in the Bible, Moses, he could see just fine being old. But anyway, he couldn't see, and they blamed it on his age. Um, now the Lord said to Ahijah, here is the wife of Jeroboam coming to ask you something about her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her, for it will be that when she comes in, that she will pretend to be another woman. <laughs> so God exposes the whole plot. So she comes in. So it was when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps as she came through the door. She doesn't even say anything yet. He just hears the sound of this person coming in. He's supposed to be blind. Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another person? For I have been sent to you with bad news. Now, that sentence makes no sense at all. I have been sent to you with bad news. 
Isn't it fantastic when you can be sent to someone and they come to you? <laughs> All right, I'm going to send you to Jeroboam, but you don't have to go anywhere. Just stay right here. They're going to come to you. <laughs> so they think they're concocting this whole thing, and they're playing right into God's hand. Yeah, I'm going to send you to them, but you know what? I don't have to do it. They're going to do the work for you. They're going to come on over here so that you don't even have to go out there. I put this in your outline for you. God exalted Jeroboam. He raised him up to a, to a high place. But Jeroboam felt like he had to establish himself. If God has exalted us, God will also establish us. We cannot ex- establish what God exalts. But that's what he tried to do. And that's when he got himself into trouble. Verse 7, go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. But you have done more evil than all who were before you, for you have gone and made for yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger. And have cast me behind your back. Hmm. Therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam, and will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free. And I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam, as one takes away refuse until it is all, it is all gone. Now, let me make this part clear. Many times in the Bible, when the viewpoint of the writer is that God did something, it is often because the Jewish perspective is if God doesn't stop something, then God did it. But this is not the writer speaking. This is God. And what does God say about his own actions? This is the word that comes. This is the word that was delivered to Ahijah and that he delivers to the wife and that she is supposed to deliver to Jeroboam. And you know that he just very careful to make sure that the words are right and what God said. And God says, I will bring disaster upon the house of Jeroboam. He's not letting anybody else do it. I will bring this disaster upon you. I will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free. And I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it is all gone. How do you take away stinky stuff out of your house? Do you embrace it, hug it? No, I mean, it's, oh, it's, keep it away from you, get it out into that can. and hmm. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. Now, this is a disgrace for people to be uh, eaten, eaten by scavengers. Dogs were what roamed free in the city, and vultures are the birds of the air that were coming down and, and eat the, the other. Neither way was uh, considered to be a good, good thing. For the Lord has spoken. Arise, therefore, go to your own house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. Now, be, now how would you like to be this as a mom? You've got to go back and deliver the word. But as soon as you get into the city, as soon as you get near the place, the word of God is, he will die. Can you imagine coming up to the, to the point as the mom? He's still alive. He's still alive. He's still alive. But as soon as I hit this, he'll be dead. Uh, I'll tell you what, that has got to be torture for her. But she's, I mean, Jeroboam is not the only one who's uh, sinning here. 
Is that what I see? And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. Now this is a real fun verse here. For he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. This is what God is saying. This is in the word of prophecy. This comes from God. Because in Jeroboam's son I see something good towards God, I am going to bring him to his death now. Isn't that what he's saying? He's going to die sick. And he's going to come to his grave in peace, but he's going to be only one. And the reason he's the only one is because I find something good in him towards God. So here's a young man who um, has a, a, a father who did serve God, but left God dramatically. Has a, a mother, I assume, does not serve God. How can you be married to Jeroboam and doing all these things and, and be serving God? So we can assume pretty much that she doesn't serve God either. So you have parents that don't serve God. What kind of environment is he around? Jeroboam is the leader of this false religion. That's his environment. What kind of people does he have around him? People who support him in this religion. This is where this guy is around. So this is his atmosphere. And yet despite that atmosphere, he has found something good towards God. So because of that, he's going to die. Don't we mostly think that when people die, it's because of the bad in them? Don't we usually think that? I usually do. I mean, somebody dies young, especially. Don't we think, well, something bad must... Here God is saying, because there's something good. He didn't say he's good. He didn't say he was a David or a Jonathan or anything along those lines. He just said there's something good. That's it. And so he, um, he says, he's going to die now. He's going to come to the grave in peace. I think of the story Brother Hagen uh, told us about his father-in-law, Mr. Rooker. That uh, he, was, he was in a coma. He was going to die. And he was uh, interceding. Brother Hagen said that he uh, pulled almost all his relatives out of death at least once. Uh, no, except for one. One he uh, did not. But anyway, he was praying for this one. And he said, the word of God tells us, you know, let, let us contend together. That means sometimes God may contend with you. And so he's uh, on his way out, and he's contending for him to live and to come out of this. And God says to him down in his spirit, doesn't speak anything different from that, but just uh, up in his spirit, it says, <clears throat> no, let him come home. He's more ready now than he ever has been to come home. It's more important than he gets in. He said, let him come home. So Brother Hagin again, contend together. So Brother Hagin came to him, and he says, all right, I'll do that on one condition. <laughs> he had that kind of relationship with God. He, he would do that. I'll do that on one condition. Let him wake up from the coma and give a good testimony to his, uh, to his children. And so that's what happened. It happened to be one room. One time he was still in a coma, but all the family was gathered around. And all of a sudden, for no known reason, no explainable reason, he came out of his coma, he sat up, he gave a good testimony to each of the members of the family, spoke to each one of them, and then just as suddenly went right back into the coma. And he stayed there for a while, and uh, that was the last time all the family was there, last time he spoke to all the family. But before he died, Brother Hagin was in the room. It was just him and Mr. Rooker. And all of a sudden, he, he woke up again. And he looked at Brother Hagin, and he said, Kenneth, I'm dying. 
He says, yes, you are. He says, but you're ready. Just lay back and let her go. And did just that. He laid back and let her go, and his spirit left his body. He died and went on to heaven. Glory to God. Again, because of the good that was going on at the time, it was better for him to, to go. For this son, it was a better time for him to go now because judgment was coming upon the house, and he was being spared of that whole thing. Sometimes things aren't just quite as clear-cut as we would like them to be. But that's a verse of Scripture that can mess a lot of people up. All Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he is the only one of Jeroboam who, will be cut, who, who shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. This is the day. What? Even now. For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the river because they have made their wooden images provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who sinned and made Israel sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Terzra. When she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And they buried him, and all Israel mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Ahijah the prophet. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war, and how he reigned, indeed they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. The period that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, so he rested with his father. Then Nadab his son reigned in his place. So Jeroboam reigns for 22 years. How long does it take for Jeroboam to leave God? It's pretty quick. I don't know if it's instant or if it takes a few weeks, or, but it isn't long. It, does, it doesn't take years. It takes a very short period of time, and he leaves God. But he reigns in Israel for 22 years. Keep that in mind. Verse 21. And Rehoboam, Rehoboam the son of Solomon. I always thought this was funny, though. How is it that, you, that uh, two different people named children so similar, and they both come to the place of king in very different ways? One God selected and one uh, Solomon selected. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Nama, an Ammonitess. So of all the, thousand, the 700 wives, 300 concubines, but the 700 wives that he had, this, this one from Ammon, is the, why he was picked out of all the others? Because it would seem like there's some other wives that he had before that. It would seem like the Egyptian one he had before that. And maybe the reason even a couple of Jewish girls he got in there early on, I, I don't, know, don't know. But somehow we take Rehoboam. So he's half Israelite and half Ammonitus. Figure that one out. But he reigns only 17 years. It would seem that Jeroboam left God pretty quickly, and Rehoboam at least hung around for a little while. Why, why wouldn't Rehoboam reign longer? And Rehoboam uh, was the son of David. Grandson, but descendant of David. Well, we find out who his mother is, and she's actually repeated. I guess they really wanted us to know who she was. Verse 22, Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins which they committed more than all their fathers had done. So now Solomon led them into this idolatry, and they had all kinds of idols in there that they brought in from all his 
700 wives and all the different places they came from, and we have listed in the, in the past the types of gods they worshipped, and some of them were pretty horrible and pretty abusive in their type of worship. And they continued doing this, and Rehoboam continued to leave this, even though Rehoboam, when the prophecy came, don't go to war with Jeroboam, he didn't go to war. He pulled it back. He listened to the voice of God. And he does, we're going to find out in this chapter, he does still go before God to the temple to worship. We're going to see that uh, in just a little while here. But still, there is evil. More than all their fathers had done. It's not enough just to keep doing what they had done. We've got to do more. For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. All over. They had them, all, not just a few in a few places, they put them up all over the place. You did not have a hard time finding a sacred pillar, a high place. They were all over the place. You could, you could find them. You got one temple for God. You got multiple high places, sacred pillars, and wooden images. You find a high hill. Oh, there's probably something up there. We can go up there. And, <clears throat> and there were also perverted persons in the land. Now, that's the King James version of it. If you went to the, I'm sorry, the New King James. If you went to the King James, it said Sodomites, which, of course, is the sin of Sodom, which you have an understanding of uh, what kind of things they were. Homosexuality is probably a big part of that. Um, you can delve into that word a whole lot more, but you're pretty much going to come out with the same type of thing. Perverted persons or people who did things in the sexual area that was perverted. And there were perverted persons in the land. This is the first time we've uh, seen this pop up as far as the description is concerned. And Rehoboam apparently allowed it. Didn't stop it. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. They're following in their sins. They're following in their idolatry. They're following all that stuff. And God says, if you don't wipe these people out, if you don't take them out of the land, they will corrupt you and you will follow in their ways. So when you hear how bloody it seems in the Old Testament that God says, go in and wipe them all out. Because if they don't, this was going to happen. And God, they had already made their decision to sin. God says, I want to preserve you from this. But they didn't wipe them all out. So evil abounds, perverted persons are in the land. It happened in the fifth year of the king Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. Fifth year. Five years he's reigning. That's not long. That means he did depart from the ways of God pretty quickly, if he was considered to be following them at all. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord, all that gold. Billions, trillions, I think we counted out to, trillions of dollars of gold that was in the temple. This guy took it all. And then he went over to the special houses that he had, and he took away the stuff there. And the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made. Then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. Now what's interesting here is he took away all the stuff. I think it was gold in the, um, in the uh, temple. He took out. Now, I wish they would have written this stuff down, but we don't have it written down. We don't know what happened. Some of the gold was in the outer area. Still only the priests are supposed to go there. But some of it was in the Holy of Holies. Who goes into the Holy of Holies? Priests. And if you weren't pure and 
you weren't ready to go into the Holy of Holies, you didn't last in there very long and you, you died. So what happened to some of the people who went in there? Did, um, did they die on their way in and they finally decide just not to, to mess with that room and leave the Ark of the Covenant in, in that place? I don't know. It says they took all the gold. And God got, apparently allowed them to, to at least go into the front part of the temple. But they went in there. But of all the things that are replaced, we don't hear about the temple things being replaced. We hear about the shields. That's the only thing that we hear about being replaced. The gold shields. This is part of the, the ceremony they had. The gold, gold shields are useless as shields. Gold is not a good metal to stop a sword, an arrow, such things like terrible metal. They're just there to be shiny. Since he can't do that, they replaced them with bronze ones. Well, bronze aren't quite as shiny as gold, but at least it's similar. So they bring out the, the bronze ones, they put them in place. I guess they had enough copper and other stuff, the tin or whatever they were using to um, make the bronze. They had enough of that stuff around, so they were able to, to replace them with, with those things. But um, the nation went from being extremely rich to extremely poor. Under Solomon, they were the richest country around. And in five years under Rehoboam, they can't even replace gold shields. They've got to use bronze. That is a far way to go. Would you not think that if in five years you went from abundance of gold, silver, and everything else in five years to nothing, that maybe you might repent? But they did not. Then the king Rainbow made bronze shields in their place and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. Whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards carried them and they brought them back into the, the guard room. So this is uh, part of the, the ceremony to bring him into the temple. They would bring these out. So he was still going to the temple, but apparently going to all the other places as well. God wasn't too impressed with all that. Now, the rest of the acts of Rehoboam, all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel, or the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. What was the prophecy that came to Rehoboam? Don't go to war. They were already, they got, they got mustered all the, the, the numbers of people. We saw how low that number was compared to when David was, was uh, reigning. It had dropped quite a bit, but he mustered up all those, all those folks, and they were ready to go to war. And God says, don't do it. And he listened, and he backed off. Well, apparently, that's the only time he listened. Now, who started the war? We don't know. Did Jeroboam start the war and, and come down, and Rehoboam defended himself? And then from there on out, they just kept having wars. It doesn't tell us the uh, details of that. So even though he got the prophecy, apparently he failed to listen to it. So we got the nation that's supposed to be united against all the people that are outside fighting each other. Now, in five years, he was at war with Egypt and lost. You would think you would conserve your energy because you've got other enemies around, but they're over there fighting each other. It wasn't very uh, smart to do. So we have one king selected by man, Solomon, and one by God. So Solomon, out of all his... How many kids he has, I don't know. You have 700 wives... 300 concubines, let's just say we only count the ones from the 700 wives. So the only ones that are qualified to become king out of the 700 wives, 
If each one had two sons, that's kind of a low number for, for folks. But if each one had two sons, that's 1,400 you'd have to choose from. Man. I mean, when they came to, to David's family, they only had to pick among seven. That is something else. So, anyway, however number of sons he had, you want to get one of the older ones, so that would narrow down some of it. But um, I, I just can't see that Rehoboam was the oldest son. It just would seem like that, that would be a little, a little odd for him to have been the oldest. But we'll have to wait to get to heaven because it doesn't tell us anything about that. Maybe we could uh, plot some things out. He was 41 years old when he took the throne. So that does tell you he's at least in the group of the older sons. That we, that we have there, but we're not really given a whole lot of detail of um, when he first got married and when the first kids were born and such things like that. But God picked one of these. That was Jeroboam. And Solomon picked the other. Who did a better job? <laughs> Apparently they both had pretty much the same end, didn't they? They both went in the same direction um, fairly quickly. Well, Matthew... Chapter 4 and verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. <clears throat> the Word of God talks about Jesus being led up in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. If Jesus was not tempted by what the enemy throws his way, you cannot call it a temptation. There are some things in this world that will tempt some and not others. For some people who had a drug habit, if they get involved with or get around drugs, that may be a great temptation. If you never got involved with drugs, seeing a, uh, some kind of drug paraphernalia might disgust you, not tempt you. So you wouldn't be tempted with it. So just because it's sin doesn't mean it is tempting. It has to be something that, uh, uh, that attracts you to it. So when Jesus is tempted by the devil, it has to be something that he would want. And we know that uh, it just gives us three of the temptations. First off, he was hungry. Well, if you're hungry, what do you want? Food. Well, here's an easy way. And he gives him a way to do it. So he was tempted to do it that way instead of to follow after what God was having him do out there. Even when he gave him, said, all these kingdoms will be yours. That had to be a temptation, which means all those kingdoms were whose? Satan's. They had to be his, and Jesus would have known whether they were or not in order for it to be a temptation. Otherwise, it's not a temptation. Here's an easy way for you to get what you came for. Now, it's not the only thing you came for. It was one thing you came for, but here's an easy way for you to get what you came for. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is the verse of Scripture we mentioned before. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So we have people who talk about this and, you know, well, I don't understand. I, I gave in that. I don't understand why I did. God said he would never have me be tempted beyond what I'm able. But if Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, the temptation that came has to be one that you would be willing to do. Otherwise, it's not a temptation. So you have to be willing to do it, and you have to want to do it, or else it's not a temptation. Sometimes we look at this and we say, well, I had a want to to do it. Well, that doesn't mean that God messed up. 
Jeroboam had a want-to, apparently, and a temptation, when a temptation came to leave God and leave the promise and leave the prophecy and go after this other stuff, he went after it. So it would seem that the way, well, let's go on here, Galatians 6, 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass. So that would tell us that people can be overtaken by a trespass. Because if you're not supposed to be overtaken by them, why is Paul giving us instruction on what to do? You who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So, here's the thing we put in your outline. Does Paul teach us in Corinthians that he will block us from certain temptations? Well, this temptation would be too much for you, so therefore God will block it. And this is how a lot of people look at this. God will block this temptation to not come to you now, because if it came to you now, you would fall. All right. Now, that's how most, isn't that how most people teach it? Isn't that how most people look at it? God will block this. So God's going around putting all these blocks up, keeping people from, from having this kind of thing go on, right? But if God can block some temptations, why doesn't he block them all? What would be the reason to not block all of them if you can block some? Is there any reason for it? Can you imagine being an offensive lineman on a professional football team? And you have the ability to block everyone. No one can get past you. Doesn't matter if they send two people. No one can get past you. And someone gets past you. And the coach says, hey, what happened there? Well, I thought I'd let one through. It's not fair. Would, would, would that work? Would we understand it? Well, how would you know where to draw the line? And then would it be fair of God to say, well, I let that one go through with you, but I didn't let it go through with this one? Is that fair? Then does it also not mean that Satan can only do what God says, which would make Satan part of God's team? And Paul spends some time teaching that that's not the way it works. And Jesus even spends some time teaching, if I do these things by the power of Beelzebub. So, see, that explanation just doesn't work for me. If God has the ability to block temptation, then why not block all of it, or at least block the ones that really destroy people? How many times have you known people that have gone into, got messed up with adultery? really messed up their lives. Got involved in drugs or alcohol, and it really messed up their lives. Why didn't God stop that? If he could, why didn't he stop that? Wouldn't you ask that question? I put this in your outline for you. Just because you didn't doesn't mean you couldn't. Right? Just because you didn't give in or just because you did doesn't mean that you couldn't have stood against it. Or doesn't mean that you couldn't have given in. Just because you didn't doesn't mean you couldn't. Now, Jesus didn't sin in the, in the wilderness. But it does not mean he couldn't. Right? If he couldn't have sinned, then he was not tempted in all points as we are. So he had to have been able to, but he did not fall. So if Jesus is in that position and he doesn't fall, 
to something that was a temptation. He stands against it, but he could have fallen, but God didn't block the temptation from coming. What would have been the result if Jesus fell in the temptation? Catastrophic, right? Surely, if God is going to stop anything, wouldn't he stop that? Because if Jesus falls, <laughs> game over. I mean, what else can we do? Everything is set up for God to send his only son. His only son. He didn't have a second. Only son, only son. He sent him. If Jesus fails, is there a backup? There is no backup plan. This is it. All of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. So there is nothing more catastrophic than this. So if God is going to block certain temptations, my understanding is he would have blocked this one. So why didn't he? Let's read that scripture again. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Most of the time we read this, our focus is on the temptation and its ability to get to us. Isn't it? All right. What if their understanding of that is wrong? We're looking at these two stories that are here, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. We can even go back into Solomon. The sin of Solomon was he multiplied wives. And he did what God said would happen after that is he followed after their idols. Was that a temptation? Did he give into it? When he gave into it, what did he also do? He led the nation into it. Was that not a temptation? Lead the nation into this. Rehoboam led the nation into even more evil than the one before. Jeroboam led the nation into evil. Right? That was a temptation. Didn't the enemy come and tempt him? Didn't the enemy come and plant a seed? They're going to leave you. They're going to go down to Jerusalem and worship. They're going to leave you. Are you capable... Just talking about you folks in the room here. Are you capable of the sin of Jeroboam? No, you are not. Are you capable of the sin of Rehoboam? No, you are not. Nor are you capable of the sin of Solomon. Because, folks, you are not a king. You cannot lead a country into sin because you are not in a position to do so. Paul talks about false teachers and the sin that they are responsible for. A person who is not a teacher can they succumb to the false teaching temptation that a teacher would? No, they're not a teacher. There are some sins, folks, that we are not capable of because we are not in a position to do them. The temptations that Jesus went through, most of them wouldn't have been a temptation for us. Would Satan ever come to one of us and sit down and say, I will give you all of the uh, um, kingdoms of the world if you just bow down to worship me? No, because you are not in a position 
for you bowing down matters to him. Are you? Because of who Jesus was. Your position determines a whole lot of what you can be tempted for. How many times have we heard people that have been given positions in the body of Christ and used those positions for wrong things? They gave in to a temptation and they did some things because of using their position. In the, but other people couldn't have done it because they're not in that position. What if what this verse is talking about is, and this sure sounds a whole lot more like the rest of the Bible to me, that God does not allow you to rise to a position where a temptation would come your way that you could not also resist. Which means God does his homework in preparing you and getting you ready so that when you come into that place of position, you will not be tempted beyond your ability because he has made you ready to stand against it. Whether you do it or not is up to you. But he's made you prepared. He's made you ready. Jeroboam was made ready. He stood up to Solomon in Solomon's idolatrous worship. But he didn't stand up to it when it came to him on his own. But he could have. He could have. Solomon could have resisted the temptation of multiplying wives and all the other things that he multiplied that he wasn't supposed to. He could have resisted not following after God. But when given a choice, he could have said no. But he said yes. Just because you said yes doesn't mean you were not trained to say no. And what this verse to me is talking about a whole lot more is that God will not allow you to rise to a position in the body of Christ. Where temptation comes, you cannot also resist it. Whether you do is up to you. But you've been prepared. Remember the Word of God talks about putting people in positions in the, in the church, in the body of Christ? Don't give it to a novice. It talks about the temptations that would come upon them. Don't give it to a novice. Let them grow up in the things of God. God is growing you up. He's training you up. Remember the stuff on training day and getting us ready. God is training you up. And you are being trained and you are being made ready. But with greater responsibility comes greater temptations. If you are a CEO of a company that averages $1,000 a week, there are certain temptations that are there, but if you are a CEO of a company that averages a million dollars a week, are the temptations greater? <laughs> the responsibilities more? The more freedom we are given, the more we are tempted to misuse it. What kind of position is God grooming us for? What is he preparing us for? But understand, he's not just preparing us for what we will do. We also have to be prepared for what we must resist. Because there are people who will try to pull. And once you get into a place where you can do great good for the work of God, Satan will try and use that to cause great harm. But God will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Just because you don't take it doesn't mean it wasn't there. Two people selected in two different ways and both failed. But it's not the job of the one who called them. 
to make sure that they do what they know to do. We've been given that choice. And God knows you have that choice. He's not going to block the temptation. But he can block the position he moves you into. Because that's his kingdom. He doesn't have to cross over to the other kingdom and block what the other kingdom is able to do. But he will not put you in a position to where temptation will come that is greater than you can resist. Father, we thank you for the help that you give us to grow and develop and to become ready for all the things you have for us. Because as we grow and as we develop, become more used by you, there are greater temptations that are around us. And we need to be able to resist them. I thank you, Father, that you are growing us up and making us ready. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.